Welcome to Pregnancy Help Podcast. I'm Christine Grimmett, and in this episode, we have a special guest, Arena Grosu, um, and we also have Matthew Doan. He's our staff attorney here at Heartbeat International, and Danielle White, who is our legal counsel. So uh, before we get started, I'd like to mention that we have an upcoming training happening at Heartbeat International, um, actually at our Columbus, Ohio office. At the end of July, July 25th through 29th, we are hosting the Pregnancy Help Institute. This includes three Three intensive tracks, the new director, development, and leadership. And we also are including uh, at the same time that week is the Love Approach ultrasound training. So uh, some really great experiences you can get um, small group setting with uh, professionals in pregnancy help ministry. You don't want to miss this. Heartbeatservices.org right on the homepage. There's a big banner. You can't miss it with information. So registration is now open. So I encourage you to check that out. All right. Thank you, Christine. Well, I'm excited to introduce Arena Grosu. Uh, Ms. Grosu is a fellow with the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism and founder and principal with Arite Global Consulting. Ms. Grosu was the Senior Communications Advisor for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights under the Trump administration. Uh, we're excited to have her today. She's a frequent lecturer on pro-life topics, uh, human exceptionalism, Rights of Conscious, uh, so we're excited to have here today. Um, so to get us started, I'm going to turn it over to Danielle White, our general counsel, to kick us off. Yeah, so Arena, I'm wondering if we could start by just hearing your story. Sure. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, so I actually became pro-life uh, when I was in high school. I was turning into a budding feminist in the worst way possible until I saw a video of um of an abortion in my ninth grade theology class. And that really changed my heart, changed um, even what I ended up doing. I actually ended up uh, starting to do um, praying and counseling outside of an abortion facility in uh, New Jersey, where I grew up. And I went on uh, to lead the pro-life group in my high school. I ended up doing the same at Notre Dame and in, in, in college. And then I moved to DC where I ended up actually working for a PR firm, uh, handling a lot of the issues on uh, life issues for various groups, the, the, the big national pro-life groups. Um, and then I ended up at the Family Research Council as a spokeswoman on life issues. So it kind of led throughout my life, but each of those different steps prepared me for the next part. That's really neat. I, I think something that's very interesting to think about is the impact that um, that happens when you have a whole generation of people who have grown up seeing the humanity of the unborn. I, that was one thing that just uh, occurred to me as you were telling your story that seeing that image, um, seeing the humanity of the unborn child really impacted your views on this matter. And I think that, um, that's just so important for, for getting to the heart of what is going on, um, for helping women to be able to make informed choices and to really be able to see the images of their unborn children is just so critical and so life-changing. Yes. And actually, I think that um, the ultrasound is a very powerful tool we have. And I love it that pregnancy centers use ultrasounds uh, that is why Planned Parenthood and abortion facilities try to keep the image of the child away from the moms, be, just to separate the mom from the child. Um, so obviously, it was it was the image that affected me. But I think that um, the most effective tools out there pro-lifers have 
are, for example, I know that live action put together the illustrations and they're not graphic, um, the illustrations of what abortion procedures do to the baby. And um, they did the man on the street type interviews where they asked people how they felt about uh, abortion just in in theory and then showed a video of what abortion actually does and how even on, on the spot changed hearts and minds. So I do think that, you know, since we have truth on our side, we have science on our side with the ultrasounds um, and that these are tools that we have. And I think that the trends that we see, pro-life trends that we see are a direct result of the fact that we can um, have a window into the womb with ultrasound. And also we do have science behind us. We know that uh, life begins at sperm egg fusion. That's the exact moment in fertilization when life begins. And so um, we, we are on the side of life. We're on the side of science. And I think we have to continue using all those tools as we continue building a culture of life. Yeah, it's interesting. What you're describing is forming consciences, right? It's forming consciences by giving people all of the information that they need to be able to have a well-formed conscience on this issue. And that kind of brings me to your work with conscience protections and the the threat to, to the rights to conscience, the rights to um, for us to follow our well-informed conscience. Can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. So I worked under the Trump administration for over three years um, at Health and Human Services, Office for Civil Rights, um, and I helped with the Conscience and Religious Freedom Division. And a lot of people don't know that we have federal laws that protect the rights of conscience of healthcare professionals, as well as individuals and, and patients. And these laws, some of them are passed with bipartisan support decades ago. And they were just not being enforced or they were under enforced under um, the Obama administration and prior administrations. And when um, we started the Conscience and Religious Freedom Division, uh, we wanted to make sure that these laws that were passed by Congress were actually enforced. Because if a law is just words on paper, um, it's it's not really doing anything and, and, and it has to have the enforcement behind it. So um, some of the actions we took while um, under the Trump administration was to uh, give a violation to the University of Vermont Medical Center um, because they actually um, violated the rights of conscience of, of one nurse who made her objections known that she did not want to participate in abortions. And um, under, under pain of losing her job, she was actually forced to participate in an abortion. Um, and the doctor who had called her in to that procedure and she did not know it was an abortion procedure actually said when she walked in, don't hate me for doing this. So obviously he knew that she had a conscience objection to it. Um, she was forced on the spot to make a decision um, and and she filed a complaint with the Office for Civil Rights after afterwards because obviously she was very um, traumatized by the experience. So even though under the current administration that violation has been dropped, um, it is my hope that people especially in the healthcare field whose rights of conscience have been violated, uh, will continue to file um, conscience complaints. They can still do so even now. And I would really encourage people to do so. They, they would go to hhs.gov slash conscience and uh, file a complaint there. Um, but we, we did a lot of different types of um, work and investigations um, it, pertaining to pregnancy centers. We actually gave violations to both the state of California and the state of Hawaii. 
because they were trying to force pregnancy centers in both of the states to refer for abortion. Again, this is against the conscience protections that Congress has afforded. These are federal laws on the books. And um, Hawaii came into compliance and actually did not, uh, no, no, no longer forced uh, pregnancy centers in Hawaii to um, refer for abortions. And um, California was, was still problematic. But um, the, the fact that there is an office, even that stands today at HHS, that protects the rights of conscience of healthcare workers is an important step. Um, and, and I think that as we see more of these threats coming down the pike and even for medical students um, who want to just practice medicine according to Hippocratic, to the Hippocratic Oath, um, it's important for people to know that there are federal laws like uh, Weldon and Code Snow and other, other laws that protect conscience, and they should be empowered by that um, because they do have rights. Yeah. So I want to swing back to something you said. You stated that you um, helped to start the conscience and religious freedom division. Is it so that did, division did not exist prior to the Trump administration? Is that or did, was it just revamped or how did that all work? Well, so I helped I helped with the launch of it. Um, the the conscience and religious freedom did not exist before the Trump administration. Um, the free exercise of religion in healthcare was under supposed to be under the civil rights division that existed already. There were two divisions, the um, HIPAA division and civil rights division at the office for civil rights. It did not have a dedicated division. And it also, there were a lot of um, investigations that didn't happen or were just closed that should not have uh, necessarily been, have gone in that direction. So I think that some, it was under um, enforced or unenforced. Um, So when, when um, the Conscious Religious Freedom Division started, we had a public education campaign about all the conscience laws that exist and uh, to empower people to know that they can file a complaint with OCR. And um, it was it was it was just a really interesting time to see how many people's rights had been violated, but they didn't know that there was any recourse for them. And so it was just a, uh, for us, it was just a, a beautiful time of, of seeing how we can help to make sure that people's rights um, were vindicated, um, especially since they, there were violations against the law. So um, uh, yeah, it was, again, the Conscious and the Religious Freedom Division still, still stands to this day. Um, and we hope that it'll continue to stand because conscience and religious freedom rights are very important and and um, they should not be ignored um, based on some ideology, et cetera. I think that um, just like with any other case um, for discrimination, that people should not lose their jobs because they want to practice according to the Hippocratic Oath or um, be sidelined. Um, I know that some medical schools actually have a opt out versus an opt in for so a lot of medical schools now force uh, students to have to do abortion training um, and they would have to opt out of it and sometimes go before their professors or boards to say why they don't want that training when instead it should be that 
if they want to do abortion training, that they opt into that as opposed to have to opt out of it because it's it's very scary, especially for a medical student getting started um, to have to defend himself or herself and and just basic belief that, no, I don't want to train for uh, to, to do abortions. That's not something that I will ever encounter in my life and nothing I want to be part of. Um, so, uh, and this goes across the board. This goes for even people in the insurance industry who don't want to cover abortions or pharmacists and, and others in the healthcare field. And so um, I think that we will see, especially with under this administration, I think that um, it, it's, it's, it'll, it'll be very interesting to see what happens to how these laws are enforced or whether they're not enforced. Um, but just uh, it's important for people to know that these laws exist and that they're meant to protect them. Yeah, so so Matt and I work together to help advise pregnancy centers specifically. So Matt, I'd love to hear your reaction to what you're hearing here and how you think that that impacts pregnancy centers and what our pregnancy center listeners should be taking away from um, from what they're hearing. What do you think? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that, I mean, what Arena mentioned it briefly, but yeah, I think this just isn't well known uh, or as, as well known as it should be that there are federal protections for healthcare professionals that do not, um, that have a conscious objection to uh, abortion procedures. Uh, I just don't think that's uh, as out there as it should be. One thing that I wanted Arena to maybe expand on just briefly is if she can maybe share, well, what is the recourse for an individual that um, you know, their conscience has been violated, such as the nurse from the University of Vermont, and they file a complaint with, with HHS, with the Office of Civil Rights. Uh, what is their recourse? Um, what can they expect in that, in that process? Uh, is it, you know, protection, job protection? Uh, how does that kind of play out? Sure. So the first uh, part of it is to file a conscience complaint at hhs.gov slash conscience. Um, again, it shouldn't be that federal laws are enforced based on who's in office. It should be that federal laws are enforced no matter who's in office, because these are laws that have been passed by Congress. I'm not sure exactly what will happen now, um, but generally these co complaints are supposed to be investigated, uh, looked into and looked into the issues that are presented, uh, the parties that are um, involved go through an interview process, et cetera. And so um, it's important to file the complaint uh, because these remain in the database for HHS. And it's important that people continue to exercise their right to want to file a complaint and to, to ask questions as to what is being done with the complaint. Um, so there are no promises right now, but it is important that people exercise their rights and um, that they make their conscious objections known. Um, because if they don't, then these agencies will conclude that there are no conscience objections, and that's problematic. Uh, if there are conscience objections and people's um, jobs are on the line or just their conscience, their ability to even just live according to their conscience, those are things that should be uh, made official and through through an official complaint process. The, the 
the the people who file complaints, their information is kept anonymous. So if people are afraid of um, repercussions, that there are laws that also protect against repercussions for coming out to make these objections. Um, of course, in the process of an investigation, if an investigation were to take place, the entities would be would be questioned. So um, it is possible that the entity that is at the subject of the complaint might know who filed a complaint against them if that person has already been vocal to the entity. Um, so it's not it's not a complete immunity, but um, the 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 names and um, the information of the people filing complaints is kept private. Even even for example, when requests are made for um, data coming out of any agency. So I think what I'm hearing is that pregnancy centers need to a be aware that these things are out there, and b uh, not be afraid to speak up. Um, and I think that's what uh, you're encouraging, you know, people that are healthcare providers, practitioners in this area. Um, it's okay to have uh, a conscious, conscientious objection to these types of procedures and issues and, and to speak out when something does violate that. Uh, but no, I think that's great. And, and so uh, I'd just be interested to hear. So when you transitioned from HHS, um, where did you go from there and what happened? So I ended up actually starting my own company, consulting company, Arate Global Consulting, where I work with um, mostly nonprofits doing um, pro-life work and helping them with strategic communications, policy work, partnerships, and growth. Um, and that brings together my expertise in communications. Obviously, that's what I did for HHS and at the PR firm and at Family Research Council but also my background in bioethics. I'm working on a PhD in bioethics. I do research in bioethics. And um, as well as having been in the DC metro area for a number of years, I've worked with a number of national and state groups that work on these issues, especially as, especially on human dignity issues, also religious freedom. And um, I think it's important for, especially at a time like this, that groups come together where there is a collaboration of efforts of even of threats to their existence, but they come and work together. And so I work with groups, whether they're starting out um, or whether they've been around for a number of years and are looking to grow their presence. And I work with them in, in, in that way. Um, and one more thought too about the conscience protections. It's important, some of the conscience protections that exist are based on people's religious beliefs. Some are based on no belief at all, except that they're against abortion. And it's, it's not just limited to abortion either. It could be uh, against having to participate in sterilizations or even assisted suicide. And so it kind of covers some of the um, human dignity spectrum. Um, and again, there are some protections even just for students, medical students who don't want to participate in specific trainings that go against their conscience. So I just wanted to mention that as well. Um, because I do think it's important for people to know that um, these protections are kind of uh, broad in, in that way as well. I think this is really timely as we do prepare for the Dobbs decision. And Christine referenced that in her intro that we might talk about the the leak out of um, the Supreme Court. So I think this is this information is especially timely as we start to think about how states might respond to a 
um, an overruling of Roe, what we might see from the pro-abortion states, what we might see from the pro-life states. As I think about the response from pro-abortion states, I definitely think that conscience um, that attacks on conscience rights are in that that deck. They're in they're in the hands of um, of those who are opposed to the work that pregnancy centers are doing, the work that pro-life doctors are doing, um, those who may wish to uh, decrease their impact, I think could use these types of laws um, or, you know, I, I think of the law in Illinois, which is currently being challenged, but um, that requires healthcare providers to uh, refer for abortions. Um, and I, I think we could see more of that. So this conversation, I think, is particularly timely as as we contemplate a, a post row America. Exactly. And actually, before we even talk about this um, leaked document, I did want to mention that there are two imminent threats to conscience protections uh, right now. So the same office I worked in uh, for for those three years is preparing to come out with two regulations that will undo uh, conscience protections and other kinds of protections. There is a regulation on section 1557. Um, and, and we know that at least in, in, uh, it hasn't come out yet, so we don't know the exact text, but just from things that have already come out of HHS that, uh, reference what they are going to do. Um, it will not only try to, uh, say that sex discrimination will include gender identity, et cetera, but um, it will basically under the pain of discrimination um, force entities, healthcare entities to participate in those types of things and also abortion. So we know that um, there, there are rumblings that this regulation will include those types of um, uh, language, that type of language in it. There's also the conscience rule that um, HHS put out while I was there, um, there is also um, is in the process of being rescinded. So we don't know what this will mean for conscience. Again, this this must be fought um, by by individuals and by entities, by pregnancy centers, by individuals working at pregnancy centers and various people. Once these two rules come out, which will probably be in the next few weeks, uh, we would encourage that everyone write public comments. There's usually a 30 to 60 day comment period where individuals and entities can um, do comments. And because both of these involve conscience and they will involve to some extent pregnancy centers, I do think it's important that um, they will respond. Now, obviously with this leaked document, we are very hopeful for a post row America come June or maybe earlier. In fact, um, my recommendation would be that the majority opinion should be published. It shouldn't wait till June. Originally, we thought it would be uh, we would hear back by end of June. But because of this leaked court document, um, it, I think it would be important for the Supreme Court to just come out with the majority opinion. They could always put out the dissent later. Um, but I think that if things percolate, um, there are the people who are very unhappy with this 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 direction will make it very difficult and will probably put undue pressure, uh, just even public pressure on the justices. And this is a threat to the rule of law. So I do, I, I do see this as um, obviously 
problematic. Chief Justice Roberts even called called this leak an egregious breach of trust. Um, but I do think that once this decision comes out and hopefully uh, the justices stay firm in, in their decision, uh, we when we look at a post-Roe America, um, pregnancy centers will be impacted a lot because there will be a lot of women who uh, will will choose life or want to choose life or just given given the situation of what will happen in a post-Roe America. And I can talk also about just, just the uh, effect of what uh, mini post-Roe America looks like right now in Texas because of the Texas heartbeat law. But I do think that pregnancy centers and the pro-life world has been preparing for this moment. We really hope that this is what will happen. Um, and, and maybe maybe the justices will um, publish the majority opinion sooner rather than later. And, and we should just pray for their safety, pray for their steadfastness in all of this. Um, but we, we do need to prepare to be able to help moms and their babies. Yeah, it's definitely a, a very timely reminder to pray. I think the, the prayer needs have uh, only intensified if that was even possible. Well, I would love to talk about all of this a little bit more, but I'm uh, eyeing our time and thinking it might be time to wind down. So, Arena, you're aware of a resource that you'd like to share with the pregnancy centers? Sure. Yes. Yeah. So, um, I have published a research paper through the Charlotte Lozier Institute uh, looking at all the pro life bills that have been introduced in 2022 or in the current legislation legislative session, as well as the pro-life laws that have already been passed in 2022. And just like in that we've seen in years past, uh, there's just been a huge number of pro-life bills and laws that have been introduced and passed. Um, in 2022, there's been 42 states that have introduced 417 pro-life bills. And um, of there's also been 12 States that have enacted 15 pro-life bills in 2022, and uh, these the, the the bills that have already been introduced they contain a lot of pro-life provisions. Uh, I would say a total of over 600 pro-life provisions. So again, America has been trending pro-life for a long time. Our bills show that. Our laws show show that. And I think that um, even as we continue to uh, build pro-life a pro-life culture at the state level. Um, this is a great resource for people to know about um, as they want to might want to know what in their state has been done or is what efforts there are to uh, pass pro-life bills. That's so exciting and just really encouraging. Can you say again for our listeners where they can find that resource? That resource is at Charlotte Lozier Institute, and it's an overview of pro-life bills in 2022. And I believe there will be a link to that made available. Okay, so let's end with a story. Tell us about a person who changed the way that you do life or work. Sure. Uh, so I actually just came back from the funeral mass of Deirdre McQuaid, who is a pro-life champion. She worked at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops for um, 12 and a half years, being a pro-life advocate. And I've had the pleasure and honor of calling her friend and being with her even in the last week, week and a half of her life. Um, and I just share that because she is someone of deep faith, but someone who really cared about the pro-life issues. Um, but she was pro-life in the way that she treated people. And she was um, hospitable. She loved community. She loved 
to um, be with be with others and and make them feel heard. And um, one of the ways that people describe her is that when you were talking to her, there was no one else in the room but but you. And uh, just I just think about that, especially with even with the work that um, all the pregnancy centers do that they're they're helping women who are who find themselves in really scary situations and they are this life and um, source of hope for these women. And I encourage you that it just takes making a difference to one person and that just by listening to them with love and, and, and walking with them that you can make all the difference. And so I just, I want to pay a little tribute to Deirdre McQuaid and her beautiful way that she did so much for the pro-life movement, um, but also just for individuals, including her friends and family. All right. Well, I think that's a great way to wrap up this episode. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for sharing. And and again, those links will be in the show notes. So please check those out Um, and also subscribe so that you never miss an episode. We have a lot more coming up on uh, the Dobbs case. We know that there is uh, more to come, lots of updates. So with that, we wish you all a great rest of your day. And thanks for listening to this episode of the Pregnancy Help Podcast.